Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture comes from 2 John, verses 5 through 11. I am writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us, and he has commanded us to love one another, just as you heard from the beginning. I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God, but anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many of us have probably heard by now the story of Bridger Walker, the six-year-old young man who put himself in the path of a dog that looked like it was going to attack his four-year-old little sister. And while they were playing in the yard, the dog began to show signs that it was threatening. And so Bridger quickly got between the dog and the little girl that this young man has reportedly just loved and adored since she was born. The dog locked down on Bridger's cheek, and when it released, he had the presence of mind still to yell at his sister to run away from the dog for her own safety. Bridger ended up getting 90 stitches. His instincts were selfless and heroic. Bridger had trained in jiu-jitsu with some of his family members, and he was pretty easily the smallest in the class, but he had some practice in defense. When his dad asked him why he did such a heroic thing, Bridger said, if someone had to die, I thought it should be me. It doesn't get much more heroic than that. And for a six-year-old to have anything close to a mind for that kind of perspective is absolutely astonishing. Since his heroic act, he's received messages from all sorts of supporters around the world, including cast members from the Avengers movies who have offered him invitations to become a part of their illustrious group of superheroes. That's all fairly impressive and I'd say well-deserved. Now I think about this. Bridger obviously loved his sister before this incident. He loved her enough to put himself and maybe even his own life on the line to protect her. How do you think he feels about her now? Now that his love has caused him some pain, injury, and stitches, and maybe even a little bit of unexpected celebrity. I have to believe that his sacrifice has only strengthened their bond. And now that he's taken a stand against terrifying circumstances to defend his sister once, and has the scars to prove it, do you figure he'll come to her defense if she's ever bullied? Or if someone is spreading rumors about her, if she's in a dangerous situation, don't you think that Bridger would once again leap into action to make sure his sister is safe? I absolutely do. The safety of his sister has cost him something, something he was willing to give, but it cost him something nonetheless. Her well-being came 
with a price. I don't think he'll have a lot of tolerance for people who would take that lightly given what he's put on the line for it. When you've sacrificed for something, I think you're less likely to take it for granted. This is one of the reasons John was such a staunch defender of the truth about Jesus and the integrity of his mission and message. From the vantage point that John had at the foot of the cross, this disciple saw that Jesus was unwilling to deny who he was for the sake of self-preservation. At many points along the pathway that led to his execution on that hill of Calvary, Jesus could have simply said, Oh, guys, you know I'm just kidding. This is like one of those elaborate Andy Kaufman or Sasha Baron Cohen things. So you can let me go now, right? Jesus didn't deny the truth about himself. And even as he assured people of his resurrection, none of his torturous death seemed like something a person would race towards if there's another choice. Let's add to the fact that John took Jesus' mother Mary into his house after the crucifixion. Mary was a mother. The story of Jesus' birth is well known to us, and she knew how precious and unique her son would be. I'm sure her maternal instinct at every point along the road would have leapt between Jesus and the cross, her suffering, to watch her son die as he did, was more than I can imagine. And when John writes... He writes not only to honor the integrity of Jesus and his mission, but to honor the dear woman John had taken into his home to care for as a son would care for a mother. Now let's add one more factor to this. John was exiled to an island on the Aegean Sea known as Patmos precisely because he lived and professed a strong faith in the way of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. A second century father named Tertullian tells a story about John being exiled after the Roman authorities tried to dip him in boiling oil. But John didn't suffer from an attempt to deep fry him, and so they apparently sent him off to a secluded island instead. The cave where tradition tells us John is believed to have received this revelation is a location that many pilgrims visit during times when people can actually go to places and do traveling types of things. See, John suffered and sacrificed to defend the integrity and mission of his friend, his Lord, and his Savior, Jesus. Many of the people of the early church did, and several lost their lives for their efforts much sooner than John did. This means that John lived long enough to hear some of the falsehoods that people were sharing about Jesus. And because of his great love for his rabbi, John didn't sit idly by without offering correction that is born from such a passion. And that leads to our first lesson this morning. Love is inseparably intertwined with the truth about Christ. Love is inseparably intertwined with the truth about Christ, John writes. I'm reminding, writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us, and he has commanded us to love one another, just as you heard from the beginning. John is about to do something that he found himself doing somewhat consistently and intentionally in his writing. He was going to offer a correction. And this call to remember the commandment of love does a few things in this letter and for us. First, this is a reminder that there are things going right. As John writes to his community, we know not exactly where this community is. He begins with greetings of gladness for their faithfulness. These are John's dear friends, and because the love one another phrase is found in John's gospel and in his first letter, 
It's a continuation of a theme that we hear as a constant refrain in John's writing. This is John writing as he does to those he loves. May they remember their belovedness. And in hearing this, may we remember ours. It's also perhaps John reminding himself that this letter offering correction is done so in the context of love. I think we sometimes miss that individually and culturally today. To be corrected is an attack, not upon just what we do, but on our very worth. Correction is seen as a hateful act levied against someone out of condescension or spite. And frankly, sometimes that is true. I don't get to see into the heart of everyone who offers correction. But my internal motivation sensor doesn't always give me a completely accurate picture of other people's purposes. But there is a way to offer correction out of love. Maybe John is offering himself a heart check to make sure that his motivations are loving before he deals with a frustrating situation. This is a community John cares about, and he sees himself offering a warning out of protection, out of love. That's a good idea for us when we offer correction also. Some of our frustrations might never need to be aired if we send it through this filter first. Some may only need to be aired if we do a serious heart check to make sure our motivations are loving and good. If it's not the kind of correction that keeps a person from running out into traffic or touching a hot stove, we probably have some time to do a heart check. We certainly should. This is also a reminder for the people who received the letter that love is tied to Jesus. Being remade in his image, surrendering to the Spirit's lead by dying to ourselves, taking up our crosses daily and following, loving in a way that reflects the self-giving nature of our God. It's not an impulsive surge of passion. It's also not a duty or obligation. It's a choice to give ourselves in humility after the example of Christ. But in order for us to love as Jesus did, we have to know Jesus. We don't get to come up with a Cal Naughton Jr. image of Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because he wants to be formal, but he's here to party. And we can make up all sorts of things about what we'd like Jesus to be, but that's not a surrendered love. That's creating a God in our own image to make our understanding of love a little more convenient for our fallen sensibilities. That might be something, but it's not the Christianity rooted in 2,000 years of reconciling and world-transforming power. And that's one of the reasons why John wanted to make sure that we knew the relationship between truth and love. And that leads to our second lesson. St. John's faith is vigilant to uphold the truth about Christ. St. John's faith is vigilant to uphold the truth about Christ. John continues writing, I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus came in a real body. Such a person, person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. Any who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God, but anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. Some of you may have heard the term catfishing to describe the act of creating a false online identity to entice somebody into a friendship or even a romantic relationship. There's apparently a show about it on MTV, but I've never seen it. A lot of times, people will just invent a person they believe someone would be attracted to and then start trying to woo this person into a false sense of relationship. 
I'm not 100% sure why somebody would do that unless it's a scam to try and get money out of the victim or just for the amusement of knowing you're clever enough to fool someone else. It's a cruelty, but people are entertained by the strangest stuff. In the first century, people were trying to make catfish Jesus. Some of them did it so they could scam congregations for provisions. There was an early church document called the Didache that, in part, calls out the traveling false prophets pretty clearly. John didn't need to spend a lot of time with that group. But then there were people who tried to paint Jesus in light of their preferred philosophies. There were usually two poles that people would err towards, and it usually broke down like this. One pole would err towards the humanity of Jesus. This would be the folks that Jesus claimed Jesus was created, so not eternal. They were the folks who claimed that Jesus was adopted at his baptism and not divine from the beginning. These were people that really emphasized the human experience of Jesus, specifically to the detriment of his divine nature. This was one end of the heresy spectrum. The other pole towards which people would move is towards the divinity of Jesus. These are folks who claim that the human flesh was beyond redemption, so Jesus had to die in order to leave the trap of incarnation, or that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose as spirit only instead of with a glorified body so that we could learn how to overcome the irredeemable human flesh. These folks emphasize the spiritual nature of Jesus, specifically to the exclusion of his human nature. Christianity has held against all concepts of percentages that Jesus is simultaneously 100% truly human and 100% truly God. And I guess that's what you get to do when you literally make the rules. So when you're reading John's writing, you may notice him emphasize more clearly Jesus' claim to divinity lest people miss the part that Jesus is fully God. Then, especially following the resurrection, John highlighted when Jesus could or couldn't be touched, his ability to pass through doors and yet still do things like produce breath, or show Jesus doing something that people considered impossible for somebody who didn't have a physical body, something like eating. John lived long enough to see the errors people were making in their attempts to commandeer Jesus for their own philosophical benefit, and John took the opportunity in his writing to correct that. Christianity over time has called these falsehoods about Jesus heresies. It's a term like another one that we're about to hear that has often been used to silence dissent or diversity of thought. That is a danger, and so is allowing Jesus to become the ever-fluid champion of our cause du jour. There is need to hold firm to what we've received as true about Jesus, and there's a need to not make that understanding more narrow than what Scripture has offered to us also. Now, the other term. Did you know that John is the only writer in the Bible to use the term Antichrist? In our cultural parlance, we've been trained to believe that the Antichrist is some sort of charismatic leader sent in to usher the end of time. But John uses that term exclusively in four places, and it always describes people, not a singular person, but people who deny the truth about Jesus. They might deny that he is the Christ and Son of God. They might deny that he came in a real human body. But it's a term that John uses to describe someone who is deceived or who deceives about the nature of Jesus. Americans like, this, like to use this term to describe politicians that we view as dangerous or even just repugnant. John uses it solely to describe people who lead others astray because they are not teaching Jesus properly. That's a pretty wide gap of understanding, but it's one of those corrective phrases that we've unfortunately mangled out of context. 
So John offered this warning, seeking to do so in ways that are loving, because he knew he was absolutely loved. He had experienced rebuking and correction from Jesus himself, but John knew that that correction was a caring act. He would offer anything for the Savior who gave his all for him, and John served the people in his care so selflessly. He also knew that if he didn't offer correction, those who suffered needlessly wouldn't experience liberation. Those who unjustly experienced execution or torture, those who were starving, those who were exploited or objectified through prostitution and slavery, if the physical didn't matter for Jesus, then it wouldn't matter for us. And likewise, if John didn't offer correction, those who needed the assurance of God's love and power shown uniquely in Jesus would despair without it. Those who needed supernatural grace to overcome hurts and habits would remain in broken places or look for relief in less merciful quarters. Eternal souls facing a future filled with either life or condemnation may continue to dwell in bitterness, separation, and unforgiveness because they didn't realize that God's only Son had come to set them free. The truth about Jesus matters. It can be difficult to relay. It can even be difficult to believe that it doesn't make it untrue, and it certainly doesn't make it unimportant. And that leads to our third lesson this morning. We are called to remain in the light of truth. We're called to remain in the light of truth. John goes on. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. When I worked in youth ministry several years back, I went to a convention where there was some really great teaching. They were helping the youth to understand that what we put into our minds would shape how we think, believe, and act. And the speaker showed clips from a couple of movies that were fairly new releases at the time, one very selective clip from the movie Anger Management and another very selective clip from Zoolander. And the speaker described how we get to approach a lot of things we encounter as either minors, you know, the digging people with the lights, not the under-18 people, minors or monks. Sometimes we come across things that have real gems in them, and it's worth the effort of digging through the rough in order to find the diamond. And we may end up with some soot on us for the effort, but the truth that we draw from the experience is worth the dig. Other times, we have to approach things like monks. They don't dig. They abstain. Some things might be a flake of pure gold in a cup filled with sewage, and we might not find it worth the effort to sludge through the garbage in order to get to the goodness. It's part of the discipline of a Christian life if we want to fill our minds with things that help us think, believe, and act in Christ-like ways that we're probably going to run into not a lot of stuff in this world that is just pure truth. It's always going to be a negotiation of what we respond to as a monk or as a minor. A Methodist founder, John Wesley, another pretty important John for us, utilized a decent tool for discerning what is effective and true in terms of helping us to be remade in the likeness of Jesus, which is the very reason that we've been created. Methodist scholar Albert Outler coined the term Wesleyan quadrilateral to describe this four-part method for discerning what is good and godly. And it goes like this. Wesley believed that the living core of Christian faith was revealed in Scripture, illumined by tradition, vivified by personal experience, and confirmed by reason. So what does that mean? Scripture is our primary guide for knowing God's heart. 
we better understand scripture through the benefit of our inherited tradition. When we live out the life of faith described by scripture through the guidance of 2,000 years of church teaching and wisdom, we will experience for ourselves the truth of God's guidance and instruction. Through our experience of God's faithfulness, we'll find that the order of the universe verifies what has been shared with us in God's word. Now, we obviously have some disagreements in the global church about Scripture, which leads to a variety of different traditions. Have we perfected this discernment process yet? I don't think so. That means we have to keep on figuring out what makes us minors and what makes us monks as we seek God's heart in order to be shaped by the truth about Christ. As St. John's United Methodist Church, we aren't complacent about that truth. It still matters today. And as we live in and share the truth about Jesus, we get to make sure we do so in line with John's constant refrain. Love one another as Christ has loved you. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for giving us light for our pathway so that we might better know your heart. We might better know the mission, the integrity of what Jesus has come to do. And so God, give us good discernment. Give us wisdom. Lead us in the truth. Help us to know who Christ is and how we are to respond. And God, we are grateful that Jesus has showed us what it means to live out divinity in this world and what it means to be fully human in this life. God, we are grateful for this incredible gift, not just for the example, but because of Christ, we have experienced renewal, salvation, that we have been brought into your holy family. We are thankful. We're grateful for those saints that have gone before that remind us of who we are and who we are becoming. We are grateful that we get to carry and bear the name of one who has lived out a love for Christ and others so well. All this we pray in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.